I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Lurkers, welcome to episode 57. Before we get started, I wanted to thank all of my loyal lurkers out there. We reached 10,000 downloads earlier this week, a milestone I definitely couldn't have achieved without all of you who take the time to listen. If any of you have some suggestions for topics or ways that you think I could make the show better, please send me a message at lurkpodcast at yahoo.com or message me through our social media accounts. Anyway, back to business. For this week's topic, I posted a poll in the Lurk Facebook group, and the topic unanimously chosen was Paranormal Happenings from the Appalachian Trail. There's a little backstory on this particular topic. I'm pretty sure it's been mentioned once or twice that I had been researching for a book, I was planning to hike the 40-ish miles of the Appalachian Trail in Maryland for my 40th birthday, which was more than a year ago. While I was in the planning stages of the trip, I was curious about what, if any, paranormal happenings there were along the Appalachian Trail, and that's how the research started. The book was a collection of paranormal or scary tales from along the AT. Topics that were covered included basically the same type of topics we cover here on the podcast. Ghosts, cryptids, UFO and aliens, missing 411, and a little bit of true crime. In fact, the book research is what spawned the idea for the podcast. I hoped that I would be able to streamline the rough copy of the manuscript through working on podcast notes. It hasn't happened. Anyway... The Haunted Trail will be a new feature on the podcast. I'll go through and share stories from different areas that the Appalachian Trail travels through. We've actually already featured quite a few Haunted Trail topics. Episode 4, The Missing 411 Case of Dennis Martin. Episode 12, The Bennington Triangle. Episode 24, Betty and Barney Hill. Episode 27, The Snallygaster. Episode 36, The Bennington Monster. Episode 41, The Holston Mountain Plane Crashes and Ghosts. And Episode 47, Maryland Monsters, The Canine Edition. Basically, I've been featuring the Haunted Trail without actually calling it that, but I'm going to from now on. First, before we get into some of the stories, I wanted to share a little bit of information about the Appalachian Trail itself and the Appalachian Mountains. Formed between 1.1 billion and 540 million years ago, the Appalachian Mountains are believed by most scientists to be the oldest mountains in the world. Their height once reached elevations similar to the Alps and the Rockies, but erosion eventually wore them down to their current height. The Appalachians were once known as the Allegheny Mountains. In the early 19th century, Washington Irving proposed renaming the United States of America either Appalachia or Alleghenia. The name Appalachian or Appalachian was derived from a tribe of Native Americans called the Appalachies. 
It's pronounced two different ways depending on where you live, either Appalachian if you're from the south or Appalachian if you're from kind of the mid-Atlantic region north. Either way is correct, though some people would say no, their particular way is the right way. Honestly, I think I have mentioned this before, because the, the Appalachian or Appalachian Mountains were named for the Appalachian Indians, it should be Appalachian. But I say Appalachian more than, not, than I say the other one. The Appalachian Trail was conceived in 1921 as a trail connecting farms and wilderness work study camps to allow city dwellers the chance to get away from the stress of city life. It was completed in 1937, and it runs through 14 different states. The 14 states are Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. Not necessarily in that exact order, because I think Vermont comes before Maine, but it doesn't really matter. Or maybe New Hampshire comes before Maine, whatever. Those are the 14 states. The Appalachian Trail is the longest hiking-only footpath in the world, spanning 2,194.3 miles. This number changes from time to time as new land is acquired or the trail needs to change direction to go around some sort of feature. At least 2 million people are said to do at least a day hike on the Appalachian Trail each year. Through hikers are the group of hikers who travel the entire length of the trail all in one shot. Often, these through hikers, or really any hiker on the trail, sometimes end up with a trail name that's based on something about them, either their personality or some other unique trait. Mine is badass because I have one, not because I am one. And my son, he's Chuck Wagon, because 30 seconds into a hike, he wanted to know what time we were stopping for lunch and had taken complete inventory of what food and snacks every person had brought with them. He was particularly happy that my mom brought Nutty Bars. In fact, for a while, we thought his nickname, his trail name should be Nutty Bar, but Chuck Wagon seemed far more appropriate. Anyway, with so many million, perhaps billions of years of history and millions of people hiking the trail, it's no surprise that those mountains are full of legends and ghost stories. Those hikers who chose to through-hike the Appalachian Trail typically start in the south, in Georgia, and head north, which is how I'm going to approach this series within the podcast. So, first up is the Approach Trail. Though it's not officially part of the Appalachian Trail, Many thru-hikers believe that you can't say you've actually hiked the entire Appalachian Trail unless you start your journey on the Approach Trail at Amicalola State Park. The Approach Trail was created to allow people direct access from the highway to Springer Mountain, which is the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. The 8.8-mile trail winds through Amicalola State Park, goes past Amicalola Falls, 
and ends at Springer Mountain, where the beginning of the approximately 2,200-mile journey begins. The area of Amicalola State Park was once the home of the Cherokee Indians until 1832 and the infamous Trail of Tears. We mentioned the Trail of Tears in Episode 55, The Haunted McRaven House. Amicalola is a Cherokee word meaning tumbling waters, which is an appropriate name for the 729-foot waterfall. The area surrounding the waterfall was known to the Cherokee as being a place of the dead. It was a place where people went for spiritual reasons and to celebrate those who had passed away. Indian braves would go there to seek visions that were said to guide them throughout their life. Those spirits that were called upon all those years ago by the young Cherokee warriors still roam the area around Amicalola Falls. At the top of the trail sits Amicalola Falls Lodge. The lodge was built in 1990 by the state of Georgia. It has 56 guest rooms in the main lodge and 14 cabins that offer hikers a comfortable place to stay before embarking on their Appalachian Trail through hike. Though it's a relatively new building, many claim that the lodge is haunted. The hauntings can most likely be attributed to the many Native American spirits roaming the area. Lodge visitors have claimed to see the spirits of Native Americans outside the large picture window in the lobby on nights when the ridge is shrouded in mist. There is activity inside the lodge as well. Witnesses mention feeling cold spots, doors opening and closing, and other poltergeist activity. Some guests staying in one of the cabins claimed they felt as though they were being watched by some unseen entity. They heard disembodied footsteps and claimed the phone in the cabin kept ringing. When they would pick up the phone, no one was on the other end. The kitchen workers have witnessed the most activity. Whenever tempers flare, the activity in the kitchen reaches a boiling point. On one occasion, two employees were involved in a heated argument when suddenly a frying pan went flying through the air toward the arguing pair. The pan nearly hit the couple, but when everyone turned to see who had thrown the frying pan, there was no one there. The pan had come from a hook on the opposite side of the room, and no one was near it. Flying frying pans are a recurring phenomenon in the kitchen of the lodge. Anytime people are arguing, a frying pan flies their way. In addition to the poltergeist activity, many workers feel cold spots in the kitchen, usually just before a frying pan flies across the room. Sounds like my kitchen. Not really. I don't throw any frying pans. The cold spots are more noticeable in the kitchen because it's usually warmer in that area, of course, because of the stoves. It seems the spirits of the Cherokee people have a problem with dissension on sacred ground, whether it's the spirits sought in Cherokee visions or Cherokee spirits haunting the land in retribution for the Trail of Tears. One thing is certain, there is something roaming the area around the approach trail at Amicalola Falls. The next area that we're going to touch upon is the haunted city of Gold, which is the town of Dahlonega. Dahlonega is the closest town to the Amicalola State Park and the Approach Trail. In the spring, it is host to many northbound through hikers before they embark on their big journey, 
and offers a place for southbound thru-hikers to relax in the fall when their long quest comes to an end. It also serves as a home base for those opting for the shorter adventures that a section hike offers. The name Dahlonega comes from the Cherokee word Talonega, which means yellow or gold. It's an apt name since the town was the scene of the very first American gold rush. Dahlonega's gold rush predated California by 20 years. Because the miners and settlers wanted the gold-rich mountains for themselves, the Cherokees were forced out using the Indian Relocation Act, which resulted in the infamous Trail of Tears. The town was certainly full of history, and that means it's also full of ghosts. One of the local haunted sites is the Mount Holly Theater. Built in 1948, the theater held 500 people and featured the MGM film The Bride Goes Wild the day of its grand opening. The inside of the theater was covered in fabric and boasted a matching curtain that opened and closed electronically. The Mount Holly Theater did well through the 1950s, but started experiencing a decline with the onset of the television age. The theater was rented out to various groups throughout the 70s and 80s for various events, including a local church for its worship service. The theater eventually fell into disrepair until the 1990s when it was restored to its former grandeur. As the theater was brought back to life, so were the resident spirits. Apparitions have been seen in the balcony, basement, and on the stage. One evening, while a gentleman was cleaning, he turned and ran into a chair that had mysteriously appeared in the middle of the staircase. On another occasion, he heard running water in the unisex bathroom and found someone had turned on the faucet, causing the sink to fill up and overflow. Another time, the toilets began to flush on their own. At that time, an apparition of an old man was seen, and then he vanished. In both cases, there was no one else in the building. The bathrooms aren't the only areas that are haunted. During segregation, the theater had a separate entrance for African Americans. Just inside this entrance is the staircase leading to balcony seating. Employees and guests have complained of an eerie feeling in this area. They say it feels like someone is watching them. Other people have seen apparitions in the balcony area. In fact, there have been sightings of white, wispy apparitions in the basement, on the stage, and in the seats. Some employees have refused to go in the dimly lit area backstage. They claim to see apparitions and feel a presence when they're there. Actors have seen ghosts sitting in the seats watching their rehearsals and also meandering between the seats. Music has also mysteriously started playing. On one occasion, the theme from Phantom began blaring from the speakers, yet there was no one in the sound booth, and the stage curtain sometimes lowers on its own. Though it may seem like a cliché, the local cemetery in Dahlonega is also reported to be haunted. The Mount Hope Cemetery is a pre-Civil War cemetery with 1,000 to 2,000 graves. That's a pretty big difference, 1,000 to 2,000. The cemetery is the final resting place for Confederate officer William Pierce. Pierce, who was also a state legislator, 
and United States congressman. But far more interesting is the grave of Dr. Nicholas Howard. Dr. Howard was born in 1821. In 1852, he traveled to California to mine for gold before returning home in 1854. Dr. Howard became the chief surgeon of the 52nd Georgia Regiment during the Civil War and was appointed postmaster of Dahlonega after the war. But what makes him interesting is his gravesite. His grave is mounded with bricks. Some say the bricks were added to prevent predation from animals as his grave is said to be rather shallow. Still others claim that the bricks were piled on top of the grave in order to prevent Dr. Howard from rising. If the bricks were meant to keep Dr. Howard in his grave, it didn't work. While not one of the undead, Dr. Howard's ghost is a frequent apparition seen roaming in the cemetery. Dr. Howard's ghost isn't the only one seen roaming the grounds. There are soldiers, both Confederate and Union, buried in the cemetery. Soldiers from both sides can be seen walking the grounds. There's even a group of ghost soldiers who are seen sitting around a table playing poker. In addition to the cemetery and theater, the Dahlonega Gold Museum also has a resident ghost. Built in 1836, the Gold Museum originally served as the Lumpkin County Courthouse and Jail. The courthouse was built using locally made brick that included trace amounts of gold. It served as the courthouse from 1836 to 1965. The building was restored by the state of Georgia and adapted for use as the Gold Museum. There are stories about Civil War soldiers being seen in the attic of the museum. But the most seen apparition is the ghost of a man referred to as Tommy by the employees of the Gold Museum. Tommy is described as a tall man wearing a hooded robe. He's been spotted walking past the Gold Museum windows and walking on the balcony. Tommy has also been blamed for the recurring knocking noises heard inside the museum's walls, as well as clanking noise coming from the attic and basement. He's also blamed for causing a stamp press to turn on by itself. The next area we're going to jump to happens to be a story about a fountain of youth and a pile of rocks. Just north of Dahlonega sits a mundane pile of stone along the side of the road. The stones are the site of the grave of a Cherokee woman with a tragic story. The Cherokee woman was named Trolita, and she loved the forest and mountains and lived on a mountain near her final resting place. Trolita was told by the Witch of Cedar Mountain to walk along a certain path in the woods, drink from the spring there, and wish never to grow old. So she walked the path and drank from the spring and grew more beautiful and youthful. Stories of her youth and beauty spread, and it's even said that DeSoto sent conquistadors to investigate her fountain of youth. There's also a rumor that a Spanish conquistador helmet was actually found there near the spring. Trolita had many suitors, but one in particular caused some problems. There was a Cherokee warrior named Wasega, who Trolita rejected. Out of anger, Wasega kidnapped Trolita and took her to his home. Though Trolita begged and pleaded to be released, Wasega refused. What a jerk. 
With each day, Trolita grew weaker. She cried tears of gold as she lay dying. She asked only to be buried on the mountain she loved. She said to him, Strangers as they pass by may drop a stone on my grave, and they too shall be young and happy as I once was. Trolita eventually faded and died, and she was buried on her mountain. Today her grave is located in Stone Pile Gap and covered by a large pile of stones. If you place a stone on her grave, her spirit will bring you good fortune, but if you remove the stones, you will be cursed. The pile of stones has been moved two different times due to construction. Each time there were serious fatal accidents during the construction work. However, that's not the end of the story of the magical spring. In 1868, a Methodist minister named Joseph McKee rediscovered the spring while hiking on property owned by Basil Porter. McKee supposedly tested the water and after claimed they held extraordinary powers. When he cleared the spring out, he discovered it was protected by a rock wall, indicating that it was used by others hundreds of years before. The area became known as Porter Springs named for the owner of the property. Mr. Porter, the owner of the property, allowed the sick to use lots around the spring until the property was purchased by Georgia's District Attorney H.P. Farrow. Farrow became interested in the spring after a wound he suffered during the Civil War, a wound that refused to heal, though miraculously disappeared after using the water of Porter Springs. Pharaoh eventually built a resort and hotel on the property. As word of the healing powers of the spring spread, more people flocked to the hotel. Eventually, Porter Springs was abandoned sometime in the mid-1990s and is no longer reachable by road. The forest has since reclaimed the spring, growing over the ruins of the hotel and obscuring the magical waters once again. And now we're going to head to Dawson Forest and some of the dark secrets it contains. Dawson Forest is a 10,000 acre forest owned by the city of Atlanta, but managed by the Georgia Forestry Commission as a state forest. Amicalola Creek flows through the forest before reaching Amicalola Falls. Visitors to the park claim that Dawson Forest has an eerie feeling. It's as though the woods are watching your every move. Dawson Forest is home to the Lady in Black. The apparition of a woman dressed all in black has been seen walking in the forest. The legend says that anyone who has caught a glimpse of her will soon lose a child, or if they don't have children of their own, a child of their closest relative would be lost. This vengeful taking of children stems from the Lady in Black's own tragic loss. The story is that her son was taken from her and killed. His body was found in a swampy grave and was eventually laid to rest. Wrought with grief, his mother doomed herself to roam the woods of Dawson Forest, seeking revenge for the murder of her son. While there's no specific information found for the murder of the Lady in Black's son, there are three other murders that are associated with the forest. On October 22, 1997, 
11-year-old Levi Frady left his friend's house and began riding his bike towards home. He never arrived. The following day, his bike was found along the side of the road. His body was eventually found in Dawson Forest with a gunshot to his head. The murder remains unsolved. On April 15, 2004, hairstylist Patrice Endres went missing from her hair salon. In December 2005, her skeletal remains were found in Dawson Forest. This case is also still unsolved. The third murder involves a serial killer named Gary Hilton, who was also known as the National Forest Serial Killer. On January 1, 2008, a 24-year-old woman named Meredith Emerson was out hiking on Blood Mountain with her dog when she went missing. That same day, a former police officer hiking the same trail came across an area that was torn up as if there had been a struggle. There were water bottles, a dog leash, sunglasses, and a woman's barrette lying on the ground. It was the site of Meredith Emerson's abduction. Six days after she went missing, the body of Meredith Emerson was found in Dawson Forest. A 61-year-old drifter named Gary Hilton was arrested for her murder and led the police to her body. She had been bludgeoned to death with a tire iron and she was decapitated in an attempt to hide her identity. Emerson was kept alive for a few days after her abduction because she repeatedly gave Gary Hilton the wrong PIN number for her, for her ATM card. During this time, he hid out in his van in Dawson Forest. It was discovered that Gary Hilton was responsible for the murders of John and Irene Bryant in North Carolina and Cheryl Dunlap in Florida. Perhaps the evil energy from these killers is what gives the Dawson Forest its eerie feeling. Or perhaps the evil was already in the area. Located within Dawson Forest is Salem Church. Amateur ghost hunters and people looking for a quick thrill claim that if you look into the church windows at night, you can see two red glowing eyes peering back at you. The sound of disembodied voices is heard and many feel unseen hands touching them. While near the church, cars have been known to shut off on their own and the car lights flicker. There were also reports of people seeing a figure standing in the church staring out the window at those standing around the outside. But ghosts and murders aren't the only secrets in Dawson Forest. In 1956, the government purchased 10,000 acres of land the land was used to build a nuclear reactor site. The site became known as Air Force Plant Number no. 67, or the Georgia Nuclear Aircraft Lab. The nuclear lab was a collaboration between Lockheed Martin, the United States Air Force, and the Atomic Energy Commission. The site encompassed several square miles and was made up of three different sites. The Hot Cell Building, the cooling site, and the reactor sites with a railway system to transport material between them. The reactor was an air-shielded reactor. It was physically hoisted into the open air when operational and returned to its storage pool when not used. Each time the reactor was operational, the area surrounding the reactor was irradiated along with the intended target.
an underground, shielded site was used to protect employees during the operation. AFP number 67 was used in research trying to develop nuclear-powered aircraft during the Cold War. In 1958, the site became the location of radiation studies and animal experiments. They irradiated military equipment and the surrounding forest to determine the effect of nuclear war and the effect of radiation on wildlife. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. Animals were subjected to extreme doses of radiation. Radiation doses of up to super lethal levels occurred in 1959 to 1960. Residents in the area recalled a red sky or red dawn in 1959. Most thought it signified the apocalypse. It corresponded with the times of the highest concentration of radiation in the forest. There are also stories of mutated animals in Dawson Forest. I know, that's so shocking. I, everybody is stunned, aren't you? Completely stunned. The Cyclops deer is one animal that is reported to have five legs and extra sets of antlers. Others have claimed to see an albino black bear, along with other albino animals. Almost every document associated with AFP number 67 is highly classified still to this day. There are still hotspots of cobalt-60 and europium-152. The site has had several UFO sightings in recent history. In the 1970s, there was a rash of cattle mutilations in the area and reports of unmarked government vehicles. In 2010, a reporter camping out there was woken up by black helicopters chasing a triangular object overhead. Next, we're going to actually travel to Blood Mountain, which I mentioned was the location of uh, Meredith Emerson's abduction. Blood Mountain is the highest peak along the Georgia section of the Appalachian Trail. The mountain was once the scene of a bloody battle between the Cherokee and the Creek Native Americans. When the Cherokee went south, they discovered the Creek Nation living in the mountains. The Cherokee waged war in order to claim the coveted land as their own. The Creek eventually surrendered, but not before the mountain was covered in the blood of the warriors. It's said that the blood ran down the mountainside and into the streams, making them red. It's the battle that is said to have given the mountain its name. Many people believe the spirits of those killed in the battle still roam the mountain. I received the following account from a hiker named Duffy, his trail name, who sent this excerpt from his trail journal written on May 1st, 2007. The landscape, the soil, the atmosphere has changed. I feel the joy and sweetness in the sound of a babbling, tinkling brook, but my mind returns to the dark, foreboding desolation that is Blood Mountain. A vision strikes me of sudden violence, prolonged for days and perhaps weeks, the great Indian battle that took place here, and then the terrible quiet afterwards, as the blood dries, the moans soften, and the flies gather. A thousand, ten thousand, perhaps more. No one will ever know, but the hollows and slopes and ridges are littered with the sad remains of proud fighters, young and old, who died here. Then slowly, cautiously, the women begin to climb. Hoping against hope, they quietly search for their men, 
hopefully living, to nurse back to health, or dead, at least to know their fate and mourn. Quietly, desperately, they search. Softly, the mourning sounds begin. Soon others can be heard quietly sobbing, moaning, and finally the mountain rings with the wails of the lost as they turn over the hundredth body to find the one they are searching for and realize all is lost. Starvation looms without a hunter to provide, or slavery, the price of survival. And on top of the highest rock on Blood Mountain, another who was lost, who cannot wail any longer, sheds her own blood, first banging her head on the cold, unforgiving rock in vicious frustration, then disfiguring her hand in mourning, and finally by the knife taken from a fallen warrior, but not the warrior she sought. A thousand bodies searched, horribly disfigured, most dead, all unforgettable. The baby already starving, quiet now, forever. Such a tiny stain of blood to mark the passing of one more soul, now too, on this cursed mountain. I hear your story, Indian woman. It comes to me in the sunlight and birdsong and sound of the creek. I can hear your anguish and unrest. I will tell your story. Now it is written down, let me pass and regain my peace of mind in these lovely mountains. I leave you and Blood Mountain behind, but you will live in my memory forever. Many people have experienced similar visions in areas that are known to be haunted. Sometimes it's as if you've stepped into a time warp and you're witnessing the history unfold around you, as though you're physically there. Other times it's what, it's what is called a residual haunting where the imprint of the event plays over and over again like a movie. Either way, there's no question that the energy of such a horrendous battle can be left behind even hundreds of years after the original participants are gone. But along with stories of ghost warriors on the mountain, there's also the story of the long-lost treasure of gold. In 1830, President Andrew Jackson passed the Indian Removal Act. This act resulted in the removal of Native Americans from their ancestral lands in southeastern United States to areas west of the Mississippi River. Between 1830 and 1850, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, Seminole, and Cherokee were forcefully removed by state and local militia and forced to travel to the new lands on foot. The Cherokee removal in 1838 was brought about because of the discovery of gold in 1828. This resulted in the Georgia Gold Rush. As the government forced the Cherokee out, many tried to hide in the mountains to delay or prevent their relocation, and others took time before they were rounded up to bury their gold and valuables on the mountain to hide them from the government. Legend says that there is a cave on Blood Mountain that contains a large cache of Cherokee gold. To this day, no one has found its hiding place. And not only are there ghosts and hidden treasure on Blood Mountain, but the Cherokee also believe Blood Mountain is home to a race of immortal spirit people known as the Nunahi, or the people who live anywhere. It is believed that the Nunahi live in the great townhouses on the mountain. They are a peaceful, friendly people who were known to bring lost hunters and hikers back to their townhouses for rest and care before guiding them back to their path. 
Though Blood Mountain is a well-traveled area, the Nanahi are rarely seen as they are able to remain invisible unless they choose to be seen. Despite the fact that few have seen these magical people, many have claimed to have heard them drumming. If you listen carefully at night, you can hear the ceremonial drumming of the Nanahi from deep within their houses. There are some stories that suggest the Nanahi not only watch over lost wanderers, but also guard a great treasure in the mountains. Perhaps they are there to guard the lost treasure of the Cherokee people. That's going to do it for this episode of Lurk. You can always find episodes on your favorite podcast listening platform or at lurkpodcast.com where we have episodes along with links to our social media accounts. There's also a link to our Buy Me a Coffee account if you'd like to toss some change our way to help offset the cost of producing the podcast. We have some cool swag, if that's what you say in today's lingo, I don't know, at lurkpodcastmerch.com. I just ordered some for the upcoming Bigfoot Conference in Staunton, Virginia, June 18th, and I'm pretty pleased with the way the new shirts turned out. And until next time, keep lurking. Keep lurking.